0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. This morning, we're going to continue our study in 2 Timothy and... For those of you who are here visiting with us, maybe you're visiting family and you've chosen to, to come and worship with us here this weekend, we're so thankful that you've chosen to do that. And we trust that our time will be an encouragement to you and a blessing to you. We have much to be thankful for, not the least of which is that God has given us His Word, preserved His Word for us, so that we can know what the Lord has for us, how we are to order our lives, how we are to trust in Him in all things. and. And that's what we're learning about in this particular passage of Scripture. By the way, if you don't know, if you're visiting with us, we, we focus on Scripture in the way that we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we're working our way through the book of 1 Timothy, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And there are a lot of problems in the church. This, this is the church at Ephesus. Timothy is a pastor there. And there are some false teachers who have come in, and they've begun to disrupt the orderliness of the church. And Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, you need to take these things, and you need to address them in these ways. And so that's what we're studying in this text. And and chapter 2, which is where we are, we're going to read verses 8 through 15. In chapter 2, Paul begins by addressing the problems that are happening within the gathered church. So in this worship setting, he says certain things to put those problems back into order. So, if you've had time to make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 2, would you just follow along as I read, starting in verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel." with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And we looked at that last week. Now here's where we're going to pick up this morning. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. In verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gathering of believers where we can study Your Word and think on Your Word and learn from Your Word. And I pray that that's the the focus today and that would be the result today, that Your Spirit would move in our hearts to see Your Word as true and trustworthy and good, and that we could apply it in the way that we do life together as Your people. Uh, Help us as men to understand the roles and responsibilities that you've given to us and to be faithful to you in the exercise of those roles and responsibilities. And for our women, I pray the same, that you would help them to embrace the roles and responsibilities that you have called them to, and that they would embrace them with faithfulness as they serve you and serve the body here at Cornerstone. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this word, and we pray that you would fix our hearts and minds around the truth of it today. Teach us now. Accomplish your purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a song you might be familiar with. One of the lines from the song goes like this. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Is that familiar? It's a well-known line from uh, the 1946 Broadway musical, Annie, Get Your Gun. And it's a fictionalized story. For those of you who know, I'm just going to rehash this. If you don't know, you might be interested in picking it up and looking at it. It's a fictionalized story of the relationship between Annie Oakley. She was a female sharpshooter, and she starred in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And and in the story, she has a romantic interest in a male sharpshooter named Frank Butler. And this song dramatizes the battle between these two would-be lovers And their egos, each of them claims to be better than the other. The battle is over who can be better, who can be greater, who's the best shot, who's the best singer, who's the best with money, who's the best with words, who's the best drinker, who's the best thief. On and on the song goes, if you can do this, I can do it better. And if you know the story or you know the show, which was eventually turned into a movie, you know that their whole relationship was really centered on this trying to one-up the other. But in the end, Annie has to swallow her pride, and she has to choose to deliberately lose to Frank in a shooting contest. And by doing this, she shows her submissiveness to him. She's able to win him over, and the two end up getting married, and then they go on to have their own show and all that kind of stuff. It's a classic story of the battle between the sexes. And the same song has been picked up in recent years by Nike. You may have seen some of these commercials. Nike has picked up on this and is pitting male athletes against female athletes in competitive sports to show us that the battle of the sexes is alive and well. This dynamic of pitting men against women It seems to be an indelible narrative of our culture. And the sentiment of our day is that if we fail to acknowledge the complete interchangeability of men and women in all things, then we are chauvinistic bigots living in the past. So what does this mean? this cultural story, this indelible narrative of our culture. What does this mean for us as we look to Scripture and we see the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of God, clearly establishing a structured authority within the church where men lead and women do not? What do we do with that? Is the biblical teaching on male headship and female submission to that headship, is that like some chauvinistic power play? Or is there something deeper, something more meaningful, more fundamental about God's plan for man and woman? Is, is that what's going on here? God is displaying something to us, reminding us of something. The Bible tells us how this struggle, this battle of the sexes got started. It was in the garden all the way back in the beginning of, of the book, and, and where God had given Adam and Eve certain responsibilities. Adam had a responsibility to lead his wife, to protect his wife, to provide for his wife, to guide his wife, and his future family. They were to embrace God's calling to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. God created Adam first. And then Eve came along, she was part of the creation of God, made from Adam's side, and she was given the responsibility to be a helper to her husband, to assist him in all of the responsibility that God had given to the two of them. And and one of the things we learn, and we studied this back in the summer with Breck's help, we studied this as a church together, biblical anthropology, one of the things we learn is all the way back in the beginning, God made man and woman to be equal in dignity and worth and value, and at the same time, God gave to them different responsibilities within the relationship and the home and the church and the world. In the beginning, there was no battle of the sexes, only peace and joy within God's newly created order, but temptation and sin entered the story and the battle of the sexes began. But the story of creation hasn't changed. The equality of the sexes hasn't changed. Nor have the responsibilities between men and women changed. But instead now the battle of the sexes is inflamed by sin and the struggle between men and women continues to this day. And at a noticeable level, if we can get back into the text of 1 Timothy, at a noticeable level this battle had made its way into the church at Ephesus. And Paul is writing To put things back into order. The men were abusing their authority by teaching heresy, and it was fueling division. The women were not satisfied with their God-given responsibilities, and so they began to step into the roles of leadership and authority, and it only added to the disunity in the church. And Paul writes to Timothy and gives him instruction with the aim of putting things back into their proper place. So last week, we looked at the role of men in leading the congregation and the instruction for women to pursue the inner beauty of godliness. Well, today, as we continue to study this text, we're going to see some further instruction for women, a positive instruction, and a prohibition. And then Paul's going to remind us of the garden to help us to understand how this all Began So let's look at the text together. Look back at verse 11 with me, and we're going to see the positive instruction where Paul says that women should be eager to learn. Women should be eager to learn. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, there's, there's a contrast in this passage, there's a m- massive contrast between what we're to do and what we are not to do. And specifically, when it comes to women, there's this long list of things that women are encouraged to do, and then a few things that they're prohibited from doing. So I just want to list out some of those things. If you like lists, here we go. There are seven things that a godly woman should be eager to do. In verse 9, women should adorn themselves with respect and honor. Again, in verse 9, women should pursue modesty and self-control. In verse 10, women should profess godliness in the pursuit of good works. In verse 11, women should be eager to learn with humility. Again, in verse 11, women should honor godly authority in a submissive way. In verse 15, women should pursue motherhood. And then again in verse 15, women should seek to grow in spiritual maturity, in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, just about all of these would apply to men as well. These are positive encouragements. These are instructions from the Lord for the women in the church to be pursuing good and godly things. And there are seven of them. And there are only two things that Paul prohibits women from doing. In verse 9, he says that women should avoid the type of seductive dress that aims to get attention or signal their status. We looked at that last week. And then in verse 12, women should not strive to be teachers or to exercise authority as leaders in the church gathering. Now, the reason I pointed out this way is to show that the positive encouragements far outweigh the prohibitions. Seven to two. But there's something that goes on in our hearts, there's something that goes on in our minds, and the temptation is for us to focus only on the negatives, not the positives. But in reality, the weight in this passage is given to the positive things that women are being encouraged to do in their pursuit of Christlikeness. So don't lose sight of that. And, and Paul makes clear in verse 11 that one of the things that women are to pursue in a positive manner is to learn. Women should be eager to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, there's some qualifications here. We're going to make sense out of that, but let's just focus on the word learn. What does it mean to learn? How many of you like to learn? A lot of us do. To learn is to gain knowledge and understanding, And, and this practice is employed by all but the preacher when the church is gathered, which, by the way, if you just kind of look around Everyone in the room, male, female, young, old, doesn't matter. We're all learning quietly in a submissive way because we're submitting to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. The only one who's being loud right now is me. So before you get real bent out of shape about this instruction, understand that this is instruction that applies across the board to the body of Christ. But women are being specifically singled out here And I think that has to do with the local context. It's not just the local context, but it was the local context of what Paul was dealing with. Learning from God's Word is what we're all gathered to do. And with only a few exceptions, the role of preacher, a teacher, the church gathering is an opportunity for all of God's people to learn quietly in submission to the teaching of God's Word. And such learning, Paul says, is to be done in quietness, and he uses the phrase full submission or submissiveness, or in some translations, all submissiveness. And the term quietness, it has a broad range of meanings. I don't know if you know this about the the, the original languages. You, you look up a word, for instance, and, and you might want to say, well, it means this. You'll get a quick little definition, but most words have a broad range of meaning it could mean this or it could mean this or it could mean that well there's a there's a range of meaning for this word quietness it can range anywhere from not causing distractions to maintaining peacefulness in the gathering all the way to complete and absolute silence and the, and there's a there's an attitude behind this there's a spirit behind this the spirit of this instruction is that those who are learning are to show respect to the one who is teaching, which I would argue that we're all doing right now. The phrase all or full submissiveness is similar to the instruction that Paul gives to wives Uh, to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, and the point there is to recognize that there is a structure of authority that God has given to us, and we should be content in that position that God has placed us. In this particular case, we should be content to be a learner, to be in a position of submission to the authority that has been given to the one who is teaching or leading. So that's just some terminology. This is a spirit of what's going on here, but the fact that Paul singles out women here is not to say that only the women in the church are to learn quietly in submission, but it's to stress the differing roles that men and women are called to perform on the Lord's day. Rather than giving instruction from the pulpit in a position of exercising or assuming authority over all, Women should be eager to receive instruction with the rest of the body. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus declares, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's that word again. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this command for all who follow Christ um, to learn from Christ, this seems like an obvious thing to us today. Jesus speaking to crowds of men and women and maybe some children, right? Learn from me. This seems like that's a no-brainer, but it was not always the case that women were given a seat at the table in this way. Some of you may know this history. The Jewish and Roman cultures of the first century, the the century into which Christ came and and from which the Scriptures were written, the New Testament at least, um, women were often excluded from official gatherings, from philosophical debates, and from religious ceremonies. But Christ welcomes both men and women. He encourages both to learn from him rather than seeing women sidelined and overlooked Christ invites women to come and learn the truth that will set them free Jesus was odd in this way he even did that for children you might remember in some of the stories in the gospels that children would come and Jesus would put the child right in his lap and he would say you need to learn from this child with from the faithfulness of a child you can learn it's one of the reasons why we're actually happy to hear the chatter of children in our worship service We also see something of this modern or this uh, first century cultural paradigm where women were kind of excluded. They were put into a different position. We see something of this paradigm in the story of Mary and Martha found in Luke's gospel. Y'all remember that story? Here's what was happening. Jesus has been ministering, and he comes to the home of Mary and Martha with the disciples, and immediately Martha begins to engage in the work that was common for women in that day. She begins to busy herself with all of the things that need to be done. And we know, based on the context, that Jesus is sitting in a position to teach, and he's teaching. But Martha is not focused on the teaching. She's focused on making sure the bread is right and making sure there's this over here. She's doing all of this work. And in the in the midst of doing that, she looks and she sees her sister, a fellow woman, not helping her with all the stuff, but sitting at Jesus' feet. And so she comes and she protests. And she says, Jesus, would you correct this injustice? This woman over here is not doing what she's supposed to do. And the Lord turns to Martha and he says, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, it's just a little picture, but it shows us a little bit of something from that culture. Of you've, you've got this assumed role and responsibility that excludes women from teaching, and Jesus says, no, 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 she's chosen the good thing, and I'm not taking that away from her. So understand the Larger biblical context around some of these instructions. Mary was eager to quietly learn and submit to the teaching of the Lord because sitting at Jesus' feet was a privilege. And and I'm not claiming to be Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, but the scriptures will tell us over and over that to learn from faithful teachers is not a degrading thing, but it is a blessing. And all of God's people, including those who often teach, are to be learners. Of God's Word. So to my sisters at Cornerstone, I want to encourage you not to look down on the role of learning God's Word, but be eager to learn with a heart to submit to the Word as it is faithfully taught. So that's the first encouragement. Now let's focus on the prohibition. Look at verse 12. He, he tells us, not only should women be eager to learn, but women should not strive to exercise elder authority. And I think in, in making that statement, I'm, I'm including teaching in the corporate gathering in that statement. Here's verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So verse 11, women are encouraged to learn. But here in verse 12, women are prohibited from teaching and exercising or assuming authority over men. Now there are, well, I, I have, I've only read a handful of commentators and pastors over the last couple of weeks in preparation for this, but there there are plenty of ideas of ways that pastors and commentators try to skirt the hard issue here. They want to create little pockets. Some of them want to say this was not universal instruction, this is just localized for the church in Ephesus. And I've already given you last week one of the reasons I don't believe that's true, and it has to do with the fact that in verse 8, Paul says, I desire that in every place these things should be happening. I'll give you the second one in a little while. Uh, You've got some who would say that this only applies to the home, and it does not apply to the church gathering. But that really doesn't fit with the context and the terminology at all. The context is the church gathering. I actually read, read one pastor this week who tried to soften this prohibition by, by saying that um, his role as a preacher was like that of a weatherman. I mean, you know how the weatherman or the weather woman, the weather person, what they have to do is they basically just, they read the signs, they look at the the models on the computer, and then they have to give you the news. It might be the good news of a sunny day, or it might be the bad news of a storm is coming. And this pastor said, you know what, I I may not like it, I don't like this text, but I have to preach it because I'm like the weatherman. I have to give you the good news and the bad news. I, I don't hold that position at all. I think that's reprehensible. I believe that God's Word is not only clear, but that it's also good. And I understand that there's a lot of confusion about this text, and there's a lot of frustration that comes from this text, but I don't believe that the Scriptures are unclear. Paul has given us clear instruction here and it's instruction that we, we should receive as good from the Lord. This instruction conveys the heart of God for the proper ordering of the church and the fact that it is at odds with our current cultural sensibilities doesn't change the fact that this is God's plan for the gathering of his people. But I do think it is important for us to understand the scope of this prohibition and to do that Let's examine the rest of Scripture. I want us to just take kind of a flyover uh, throughout the Scriptures to understand just what is the proper role and responsibility given to men and women, specifically women. Throughout Scripture, here's what we see. We see an almost exclusive pattern of male headship, of male leadership. But there are some exceptions, and they're pretty striking The Old Testament affirms women in roles that the rest of the world often denied to them. And if you don't know this about biblical Christianity, you you should probably inform yourself on this issue. Uh, Here's a few. Both fathers and mothers were called to instruct their children in the law of God. Not just fathers, but fathers and mothers. Proverbs 6.20 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. The protection of the law applied equally to both men and women in Exodus chapter 21 and verses 28 through 32. Women were given inheritance rights, and in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was completely unheard of, but it was not unheard of in Numbers chapter 36, verses 1 through 12. Men and women were both allowed to participate in Jewish religious feasts. You can read about that in Exodus 12, Deuteronomy 16, and so many other passages. Women were also involved in spiritual service. There was a a role called the ministering woman. And the ministering women were given responsibilities outside the entrance to the tent of meeting. And they were called ministering women. They were serving women with responsibilities that had to do with the worship of God. You can read about that in Exodus 38, verse 8. Some of you know the story of Deborah. Deborah the book of Judges. She's the only female judge. She served as a leader over God's people. She served as a leader over the tribe. But it should also be noted that even she understood that there was a a mark where she wasn't willing to cross. For instance, she declined to lead the military. She declined to lead the army, understanding that war was the province of men. And so she Obviously led, but even she limited her own authority. Certain, were wi- certain women were given the title of prophetess. You might know about this from the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. This was often associated with the fact that these women were, were married to prophets. Um, and in some cases, they were called prophetess because they gave birth to someone who became a prophet, to a man who became a prophet. But they were uh, linked with that ministry in a profound way. In the New Testament, we see women given a prominent role in the life and ministry of Jesus. His mother Mary spoke by the Spirit of God, and she sang a song. We call it the Magnificat, um, and it's quoted in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Two women were the first to see Jesus, who was raised from the dead. You can read about that in John 20. Um, You may remember um, that men and women were both part of the early prayer meetings of the early church. You can read about that in Acts chapter one. You might know of Aquila and Priscilla, his wife, and how Aquila and Priscilla were both instrumental in explaining the gospel more clearly to Apollos. It wasn't just Aquila, it was Priscilla as well. And, and look, we're, we're reading a book written by the apostle Paul to Timothy, and in 2 Timothy Paul encourages Timothy by reminding him of the the investment made in his own life by his mother and his grandmother. All of this evidence helps us to understand the high value placed upon the contributions of women to the purposes of God in Christ and to the growth of the people of God. And this helps us to understand something. It helps us to affirm the equality and worth and value and dignity placed upon women by God and His people. But these verses do not change the fact that God has ordained men and women to serve in different roles. There are no female pastor teachers or evangelists or elders in the New Testament. None of the New Testament authors were women. There is no recorded prophecy or sermon by a woman. And while there are countless women who served the Lord and aided the church and even opened their homes to allow the church to gather there, the role of preaching and exercising elder authority is exclusively given to men. And that has not changed. I do not believe that verse 12 prohibits women from serving in the church in every teaching role. Did you hear that? I I do not believe that verse 12 prohibits women from serving in the church in every teaching role. And here's why. Women are called to teach other women in Titus 2 and verse 3. And the teaching of children is a role that women are wonderfully gifted for and called to by God. But the role of the elder who proclaims God's word in the gathering of God's people and is called to exercise governing authority over the body of Christ is a role that God has assigned to faithful men and not women. New trends in society do not change what God has revealed as good. And there are, this is a very hot debate even right now. There are women being ordained into ministry all over the place because of what I believe is a misunderstanding of this passage and a rejection of the clear prohibitions that are found here. Equality among the sexes does not mean that men and women have the same responsibilities and calling. God made us different on purpose. He's given us different responsibilities within creation. And in verse 13, Paul draws our attention back to the garden to help us understand what went wrong and help us to ensure that it doesn't happen again. So let's look now at the garden. Remember the garden, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So God wants us to frame this discussion about the roles of men and women in the church by remembering the order of creation all the way back in Genesis. And I don't think it's so much about the order, but how things played out. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Before the fall occurred, God made a distinction between humanity by forming Adam first and then fashioning Eve To assist her husband in the calling that God had given them. And this is one, this is the second reason why I reject the local application of this prohibition versus the universal. Um, Not only does the, the passage start with that phrase in every place, but here the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention back to a creation ordinance to say, this is why this prohibition matters. It's not just a local problem. This is something that we need to understand has universal instruction. It universally applies. Paul's understanding of the complementary roles of men and women is rooted in creation. Male headship in the home and the church is a creation principle, and it was established before the fall as fundamental to God's design for humanity. But like I mentioned in the introduction, the fall does play a role in our understanding of men's and women's roles. Rather than faithfully leading his wife, let's think back to the garden. Rather than faithfully leading his wife to reject the temptation of the devil, Adam stood by and let the rebellion occur. And instead of deferring to her husband, Eve struck out on her own and chose to believe the devil's lie rather than the Lord's word. And the point that Paul seems to be making, or at least in my estimation, the point that Paul seems to be making here is that Eve tried to assume authority for herself and over her husband, and the results were disastrous. She stepped out from under the leadership of her husband. She refused to believe the word of God, and she brought transgression into the garden. And instead of leading, Adam became a follower. And he committed the same sin as his wife. Both Adam and Eve failed to follow God's design, which led to ruin. And Paul's point is that this shouldn't be happening again. We shouldn't let that paradigm go again. It shouldn't be happening in the church now. So men are called to lead and women are called to submit to that authority. So Paul is reminding us of our past so that we can be encouraged to embrace our roles today. All right, there's one more verse here. And it's an interesting one. And you might have some questions about it, as I know a few of you do. Verse 15, what are we to make of this? Yet she will be saved through childbearing, or literally through the birth of the child, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What is that all about? What is he saying there? This verse is notoriously difficult to interpret, and as you might expect, many attempts have been made to explain it. Um, If we just look at some of the terminology, like the word saved, yet she will be saved, what does that mean? Is it any different than the words that talk about we are saved by grace through faith, right? Um, No. It's not. It's the same term. The word saved here is the same Greek word used to describe salvation from sin. But do you remember what I said earlier about words having a field of meaning. It doesn't only mean saved from sin. There are other ways this word is used. It can be used to describe being delivered or being rescued or being preserved. But what is, what is this all getting at? Like, what's the point here? What is she being saved from or preserved from? And, and how does child bearing play a role in that. I think we can confidently dismiss the idea that salvation from sin is in some way going to be granted to women who give birth. Are we okay with that? We, we better be. Because Paul's already made it clear in the previous section that there is only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is only one means of salvation from sin and judgment, and that comes through faith in Christ alone. So he's not undoing that and saying here, oh, if you just have a child, you're saved from your sin. That's not what this is getting at. Christ alone rescues us from sin, delivers us from sin. It is by grace alone and through faith alone that salvation from sin. Sin becomes a reality for all. So giving birth is not the one work that women can do to earn their salvation. That is not what Paul is saying in this verse. Nor is Paul saying that women will be kept alive, preserved in their childbearing efforts. That's one interpretation. And the reason we know this is just from our own history and experience. Many faithful and godly women have lost their lives in the course of giving birth. So what is it? referring to. What I believe this verse is teaching is that women will be saved through the birth of the child, referring to Christ and the promise made to Eve in Genesis 3. Right? So the context is already Genesis 3. And in the midst of God's curse upon the woman, all the way back in Genesis 3, you might remember that God held out a promise, that from her seed would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. God held out this promise that a Savior for His people would be born to a woman. And in this case, it's through the woman's acceptance of her role uh, as a helper to her husband and embracing her God-given role as a life-giver that salvation would come into the world. In other words, the problem of sin would not be dealt with by women usurping the authority structure ordained by God, that idea that, well, I'll just take this into my own hands. I'll I'll take care of this. That's not how salvation is going to come into the world, but as women embrace the wonder of womanhood, as mothers and nurturers and helpers, in time the Messiah would come to deliver his people from their bondage to sin. John Stott sums up this position well when he writes this. He says, "'The serpent deceived her, "'but her posterity would defeat him. "'Even if certain roles were not open to women, "'and even if they are tempted to resent their position, "'they and we must never forget what we owe to women. "'If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, "'there would have been no salvation for anyone. "'Therefore, no greater honor has ever been given to woman "'than in the calling of Mary "'to be the mother of the Savior of the world.'" So to my sisters here at Cornerstone, I urge you not to see this prohibition against preaching and exercising elder authority as a slight upon you as a woman. God has given to you a high and glorious calling that is different, but no less noble than the calling that he has given to your brothers in the faith. So in the spirit of thanksgiving, let me remind you of a few things that we can be thankful for as we see this passage. Number one, we can be thankful for the humble leadership of faithful men. We can be thankful for the humble leadership of faithful men. Number two, we can be thankful for the godly adornment of faithful women who adorn themselves with godliness. We can be thankful for the roles and responsibilities that God has given to us. And we can be faithful in our execution of those roles. And then fourth, we can be thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ which both models and motivates our own faithfulness to the word of God. And I want to close by reminding you of something that I mentioned I preached back in August in a sermon on biblical womanhood. God has called you as women to be the mothers of this generation, but he's also called you to be godly guides for the next generation as you lead younger women to understand how to love their husbands and love their children well. God has made you and God has called you to be those people who shape the culture, and not the least of which is by shaping the home and the family and the generation that is still growing into maturity. God wants to use you to craft a legacy of faithfulness. And by the grace of God, you will do that in a thousand ways. Womanhood is a calling a high calling to be productive, to bring life into this world, to exert a civilizing and beautifying effect upon the world, to shape new life and guide it toward its own God-ordained purpose. Womanhood is about life-giving. It's about nurturing. It's about helping. It is about teaching, and it's about training. So to my sisters at Cornerstone, don't despise this work. And don't let the culture tell you that the real work of women is in breaking glass ceilings. Look to the Lord to understand your purpose and calling. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for this, this word and this time to study it, think on it. And yes, it is hard at times to study your word and see things like this, but let us see it as good because it clearly tells us what you have called us to. It clearly helps us to understand your purpose purpose, your plan, your will, and your design for how we are to function as a faith family. And so I pray for stronger, more faithful, more godly men to, to step up, to lead, and to teach, and to exercise the authority of elders to bear the burden of that role. And I pray for our sisters, for our women in the church, that they would take advantage of every role and responsibility and calling placed upon them. And I pray that you would bless us as a, as a church as a result of that. So Lord, I thank you for this. I pray also for those within my hearing who have heard something of the gospel this morning, that our salvation does not come through our works, but it comes through faith in Christ and his work, what he has accomplished on the cross, in dying in our place, and being raised to show that he had accomplished salvation, and now by faith in him, now by faith in him, we can be saved. Lord, would you use that gospel message even today to plant a seed in the hearts of, of those who are yours, and let it grow to fruitfulness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.